0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, how to get an SSL certificate for somebody else's website, how to decrypt HTTPS traffic with some JavaScript, and the latest storage reliability report, plus some great questions, a rockin' round up, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 278 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 4th. 2016 this episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, ting and ix systems i'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on oh our live stream that's powered by the incredibly epic scale engine over at scaleengine.com my name is chris and joining us every single week is our host the admin the tech and the teacher mr alan jude hello alan hello everybody Thanks okay for watching. alan Love that shirt. You, it, now, it won't play as well on audio because it has an emoji in it, but I can't believe you're wearing an emoji shirt. Life is too short for poop software. Just, yep. I'll just say poop software. Well, in the emoji.
1: Uh, This was, uh, the it, JT sent me this. Uh, it's nice. He picked up, up a couple of things at the, uh, I forget which conference he went to with you guys. Um, yeah, Linux, these. Linux Viz? perhaps, perhaps. Uh, no, it was before that. Oh, okay. So well, you know, I'll tell you if you're gonna like wear 2015. If you're gonna I think wear it was a shirt self or something,
0: I'm, have I seen that before? Because I've I seen yes. that oh, shirt yes. in the past. Yeah, oh, and yes. that's the one to wear. Yep. Um, we have a great show.
1: And, and, I just like it. It's a very, very soft T-shirt. <laughs> and I like that, <laughs> and
0: it happens to have poo on it. That's that's yeah. that's also a, a plus.
1: Uh, Def Con, right? Def Con's mm-hmm. going on this week. Well, Def Con slash yeah, Black Hat. Black Hat as well. I'm not sure that's schedule. Yeah, they're like. Conjoined things. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: So lots, whenever that happens, it's like Christmas in August for TechSnap. There's a ton of news for us to get into. So we have a packed show. There's also some big stories floating around the web that I've I've seen the uh, subreddit talking about and I've seen the IRC talking about. Um, and our first story comes from thehackingblog.com, which I was kind of chuckling at the name of, but uh, after you told me what they discovered, the name sounds legit. What's going yes. on?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is... Uh they've uh, dis- they discovered a way to actually issue ssl wildcard certificates for domains they didn't necessarily have any control over yikes which is basically the whole point of ssl is to prevent a man in the middle attack by right. being able to verify that the to trust know, the identity who to the other, side, you're the other to. side is proving who they are with the certificate but if i can get a certificate uh, for yourdomain.com and can prove to random people that I am the legitimate yourdomain.com, it kind of defeats the whole purpose of SSL because yeah. now I can intercept you. Yeah,
0: kind of. It kind of yeah. does. The whole
1: point of SSL is prevent men in the middle attacks, and this makes it not doing that.
0: So this seems pretty big to me, my yeah. rough uh, estimation of this situation.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the researchers here said, uh, I recently decided to investigate the security of various online certificate authorities' online certificate-issuing systems. Uh, these online issuers allow certificate authorities to verify that someone owns a specific domain such as the hackers blog uh, hackerblog.com and get a signed certificate so they can enable uh, SSL/TLS on their domain. Sure. So he says, uh, when I started out hunting uh, for possible vulnerabilities, my initial strategy was to look for the cheapest, most 90s-looking, poorly designed <laughs> certificate authority websites. <laughs> Since the compromise of any certificate authority allows an attacker to bypass all the protections of SSL and TLS, it doesn't even have to be a popular provider because all of them have the same power. Right? Any certificate authority that's in the trust store and you know, your Firefox and right. your Chrome and your Windows and, and iOS means that... Uh, yeah, compromising any one of those is the same as compromising all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After doing a bit of searching, I realized it would be advantageous to do testing against authorities that have a free SSL certificate. Uh, most uh, A number of authorities will give you a, a free 30-day certificate to try it out or whatever. I don't know why that's still a thing. I don't know how many people actually do that. Want but... to try
0: out this new SSL thing? Try this.
1: Well, especially now that Let's Encrypt is a thing, but... Yeah, uh, really, you know, right? This is, this is mostly an artifact from the 10 years before Let's mm-hmm, Encrypt was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, so he's like, yeah, uh, since doing these tests won't cost me any money, I'm going to start by testing against the places I do for free. He says, I passed on Let's Encrypt because I figured that it had already been thoroughly audited. Uh, and then the second site I saw in his Google search was a 30-day free trial for Positive SSL, which is uh, one of the brands owned by Komodo. Oh, okay. It says, uh, so then you go to the website and you decide, all right, I'm going to get an SSL certificate and you do this stuff. And eventually you get to the point where you get a form where it asks you to enter your CSR or certificate signing request. Mm-hmm. So you basically run this open SSL command and come up with a, uh, a certificate signing request and mm-hmm. a private key. Yep. Um, and you send that off to the uh, certificate authority and uh, they use that uh, to generate a certificate. For you, and then you combine that certificate with the key, which you kept and didn't lose and never give it to anybody else, and now you have your uh, public and private key pair and are able to encrypt stuff. Upon entering your CSR and selecting the software that you uh, use to generate it and what web server you're we going to use, you then select an email address for domain validation from your website's Who Is or a, a certain list of of. Reserved email addresses like Hostmaster and Postmaster and so on. And uh, you arrive on the corporate details page. This is the vulnerable portion of the application where you fill out your company slash personal information and you get the email validation portion of this. So um, the way Komodo is proving that uh, you're the person that actually owns whateverdomain.com is by sending a verification code to the address listed in the whois on the domain uh, and because that's the person who owns the domain. And only the person with the code can activate the certificate. Uh, he says, when I first went through the process, I mindlessly filled out junk HTML for all of these fields. Uh, the service sent a verification email to the email address on the website's whoisinfo. Once I received the email, I noticed the HTML was not properly escaped and the markup I had entered before was being evaluated. Hmm. So normally what you would want to do is escape the special characters for HTML, like the angle bracket, and turn it into you know, ampersand, lt, or ampersand gt and so on. Uh, but it didn't do that. So it means if you put in as your name, you know, uh, HTML for bold, and then your name at bold, your name would suddenly be bold in the email.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, or if you stuck in an image tag, all of a sudden it would throw an image into your email. It's like, oh, that's <laughs> not listen to do that. Um, yeah, this is, uh, this is really bad because the email also contains a verification code uh, which can be used to obtain an SSL certificate for that website. This means if I had a way to leak a victim's token, I could obtain a valid certificate for their site, uh, so that I can intercept traffic for their site seamlessly without users knowing that I was doing so. Right. Uh, so normally the email provides the user with a link and a code to validate the certificate. However, because the attacker can fill out uh, on the in the form fields chunks of HTML, mm-hmm. they can change the message in the email. Right. You can. They could inject CSS to like just. Uh, make all the original content of the email hidden and display only their content or whatever. Hmm, sure. Uh, so what he did was uh, he changed the message in email. Instead of requiring you to click the link and enter the code mm-hmm. was put a button that says click this to reject this bogus certificate. So you, you set it up so I would email say Chris uh, and you would get an email saying you have to click this link within the next 24 hours to block this certificate from being issued. And you're like, well, I didn't order that. So, yes, I'm so going to of course,
0: it. I would click that. Yeah. I'm a du- I mean, that says I'm dumb enough to do that anymore. Oh, look, somebody signed me up for something. Let me click. Th- I would so click that, Alan. <laughs> I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what he ended up doing was in one of those fields, he put some HTML that includes a form tag uh, with the action pointing to his website. And then a text area tag. But he didn't close the text area tag. Right. So this resulted in everything that normally appears in the email after that field being swallowed up by Mm. the text area uh, rather than being part of the body of the email. So part of what was swallowed is the verification code, right? Then in a later form field, he put the HTML for a button uh, and that says click here to reject this request. When the user clicks the button, it submits the content of that HTML form that he built, which includes the text area and that text area has captured the content of the email being the verification code. Right. Uh, so when you click that button, it sends the verification code for that certificate to the URL that the bad guy injected into when he signed up. Right. Uh, so now the verification code required to get a certificate for JupiterBroadcasting.com is just submitted to my website, not uh, when you click the button to reject the certificate. When you basically you click the button, and instead of being sent to Komodo you're actually sent to my website where you just gave me your verification code uh, hmm. without knowing it, right? You didn't copy and paste it or something. Mm-mm. It was hidden in the text area.
0: That's brilliant. It was really crafty.
1: Yeah. Uh, but also not actually
0: that hard. Um, it really just relies on their form passing HTML through. Like,
1: without escaping it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so now they just, you just log into the, the Komodo website, paste in that code, and I can now get a certificate for your website. Uh, it says, uh, form submissions are a great way to leak secrets like this because they work in many different email clients. Even the iPhone's mail app will support the button-clicking functionality.
0: <laughs> I, I love They got a screenshot of it here in the article. Yeah, yeah. don't worry. Uh, mobile users aren't left out.
1: <laughs> says, uh, Once I've leaked the code from the victim in this way, I can log into the account I created during the certificate request process and download the SSL certificate and go about doing man-in-the-middle attacks uh, against their website. Mm. Uh, One other important thing to note is that resellers of Komodo certificates are also affected by this. They have quite a few resellers. Uh, like I think even Namecheap, the domain registrar, uh, resells it. Uh, This risk is amplified because resellers uh, can have a customized HTML header and footer uh, for the verification email so that the email doesn't say Komodo on it. It says whatever company is reselling it. They're white labeling it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, This risk is amplified because resellers can have uh, the customized headers and footers Uh, This means that it would be uh, possible for a third-party vendor to have a dangling image tag in the header combined with a single quote in the footer that would side-channel leak the verification code of the email. So basically, if you started an image tag at the top and left it just the opening quote and put the closing quote at the bottom and there were no quotes in the middle, the verification code would become a URL. Mm. So if I just did image... URL equals AlanJu.com slash stealyourkey.php question mark. Of course. And all the rest of that becomes a a get variable and I will get the verification code sent to me when your browser or when your email client loads that image. You didn't even have to click anything.
0: Holy smokes. No wonder this is getting so much attention online today. Yeah.
1: Uh, This this style of dangling markup injection uh, wasn't Possible in the previous proof of this concept, but is definitely possible for resellers. Uh, so then he has a timeline of the thing. So uh, he discovered this on June 4th, and he emailed security at komodo.com and reached out on Twitter to komodo-ssl. Uh, on the 6th, uh, Robin from Komodo confirmed that that was the correct contact to report security issues and provided the Komodo's PGP key. Uh, and so then he emailed Komodo uh, the vulnerability in a PGP-encrypted email And sent them the public keys so they could verify. All right. On June 7th, uh, Komodo confirmed they understood the bug and stated that they'd work on a fix as soon as possible. Uh, Fast forward uh, two weeks or so to uh, June 20th, and uh, he emailed Komodo for a status update. Uh, And then on July 1st, he he sent Komodo a timeline for responsible disclosure saying that Uh, 90 days after he reported he was going to post it if they didn't do something about it. And on uh, July 25th, Komodo confirmed that the fix was in place. Nice, okay. Uh, And so, as of July 25th, not a problem anymore at that one particular site. So, who knows uh, how many other uh, certificate authorities might have this same problem, though, right? Huh. So, hopefully it gets enough publicity that the other uh, certificate authorities go and check all this stuff on their own sites, right? yeah. Uh, so then the researcher goes on to say, normally the name of the game when it comes to finding a way to mint arbitrary SSL certificates is to find the smallest, cheapest, and oldest certificate provider you can. Komodo is the exact opposite of this. Uh, they have over 40% market share and are the largest minter of certificates on the internet. Uh, Basically, they are now the largest provider of SSL certificates, and yet they still suffer from security issues that would be <laughs> hopefully caught by just regular penetration testing engagements, right? Right. It's the type of stuff that, you know, you don't have to be very advanced to type HTML into form fields and see if the email that comes back still has the HTML unmolested, Right. <laughs> Uh, This paints a grim picture of the certificate authority system. If the top providers can't secure their system, how could the smaller providers possibly be expected to do so? Uh, It's a hard game to play since the odds are heavily stacked in the attacker's favor with tons of certificate authorities, all with the power to mint arbitrary certificates. A single CA compromise in the entire system falls apart. It's true. Jeez, the weakest link. Although I'm not sure that there are that many small certificate authorities. Uh, a lot of the extra ones are, uh, you know, governmental. Like, when the system was originally set up, it was like each country got one, basically. and Or not quite every country, but some of the things like that were done. Um, it's not very easy to start a new certificate authority. <laughs> even, even Let's Encrypt, right. uh, you know, they had to piggyback on an existing one because you would have to get... Your pre- your key into the trust store right. in Mozilla, Microsoft, uh, Google, Apple, etc. And even then, you know, obviously that's not going to work on Windows se- uh, Seven computers that haven't got an update or yet, or certain
0: right? esoteric mobile browsers that who knows yeah. bundles with what.
1: Basically, you'd have to be trusted for five years before you could really uh, yeah. start selling certificates to before anything. enough
0: software is shipped or been replaced that uh, yeah. yeah that you're exactly. actually
1: trusted enough. Right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that many small providers in this particular case. That's why there's so many resellers, and you know that's why Komodo managed to get forty percent of the market by having resellers and letting you get a basic certificate for like yeah. ten dollars a year instead yep. of 1000 thousand. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so luckily we have some defense against this with the newer web technologies such as public key pinning, which offers protection against attackers using forged certificates. Uh, basically, if you have a a real SSL certificate you can uh, do some things to say hey the real SSL certificate for my site will always be this one with this key or uh, Mm -hmm. this fingerprint and if you end up seeing a a certificate that's not that one then your browser should reject it so this is kind of uh like Chrome and Firefox have this built in for a couple of domains uh like google.com uh in Chrome, they know which certificate is the real one for Google. And if they see a fake one that, while is trusted, isn't the one Google is expecting it to be, mm-hmm. they can reject that. Uh, but re- this new system allows websites to do it without having to have enough cloud to get built into browsers. Right? It's kind of – imagine something like HSTS, uh, but for certificate pinning.
0: Well, Alan, surely only someone like Putin himself would have the resources to pull a hack off like this, right?
1: Well, um, just a pr- point on the certificate pinning thing first, uh, while it's a fairly powerful mitigation against an attacker with a forged certificate, uh, the support is iffy. Uh, oh. Currently, Internet Explorer, uh, Microsoft Edge, Safari, and Safari on iOS do not support uh, public key pinning. Gee, I'm surprised Edge doesn't since it's such a new browser. Is that, yeah. Do you think it's just simply
0: because it's kind of a newer thing and that's why?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's actually a codified standard yet or if it's still a draft. But this is, um, goes but back I to exactly what Firefox. we were just saying. Yeah. Exactly, it does. But yeah, as you were saying about nation states and yeah, so on. Yeah, big hack and big Putin. Yeah. Uh, many people like to speak of a certificate authority hack as if it was something that only a nation state could accomplish. But just a day's worth of searching led me to this issue, and I have, don't doubt that many providers suffer from much more severe vulnerabilities. What happens when an attacker doesn't care about ethical boundaries and is willing to do more in depth testing? After all, this is Komodo, the largest provider. What about the smallest certificate provider? Do they really stand a chance?
0: It's a great point. And it reminds me, that last point there that he just makes reminds me of the story last week where a Project Zero developer uh, on Twitter was like, hey, everybody keeps asking me to look at LastPass. Well, okay, I'll take a look at LastPass. And then like two hours later found a massive vulnerability in LastPass. It's not like he's some state hacker. It's just there are certain people that are extremely well skilled and they they can find these things. This is a big yeah. one, it seems like to me.
1: Yeah. Uh, just the last point there is mm-hmm. just because you're big doesn't mean you're good at security. And just because you're small doesn't mean you're bad at security. Right. Is the other thing. You know, I, I wouldn't say that just because you're a smaller certificate authority, you don't stand a chance of being secure. It's mm-hmm. like if you, if you have the right people, you probably are a lot more secure than the giant one that just carries about uh, you profit, know, how it's in, dollars profit dollars yep. they can make up each certificate.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a, it, it almost feels like a little due diligence is required before you go shopping.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, you know, maybe at some point there'll be more requirements from the, the CA slash browser forum to actually mandate a certain level of, of penetration testing of, of that of this particular stuff, like how the domain validation and you know, I'm guessing the CAV doesn't didn't ever even consider that something as basic as the HTML email like a sent for domain validation would be invalid. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It kind of raises the question of maybe we should be doing something a little more like. Um, like Let's Encrypt does, where it's add this DNS entry or create this file uh, to va- validate the certificate. That's not what I was thinking. This email,
0: <clears throat> right? And then email it seems, seems like too too weak. It seems like if you if you short up with using some of the same practices that Let's Encrypt does, and at the same time encourage the industry to roll out new standards like pinning, so that way we have ways to combat this on both ends it, it that would also help so it's like there's a lot of couple there's like there's a lot of things you could do you could do more penetration testing you could hire c- people to come test y- you could you could improve adoption uh, you could well, I think do more verification way, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different ways you could improve it i it, don't
1: i don't think the cab actually val- uh, um sets out exactly what's required for the domain uh control validation like for uh there's no actual standard of mm-hmm. how the, the uh, certificate how authorities it. have to prove that you own the domain, <laughs> right? Uh, oh, and cool. I think looking at the kind of stuff Let's Encrypt did, did is maybe better. Um, I can understand why you know not everybody that has a website knows how to create DNS entries with random text in them or whatever in order to validate the certificate. But obviously, creating a file in a, at a known path like you know well known slash whatever mm-hmm. uh, seems relatively doable. I agree. Uh, although there's also problems there. You know, if it's a WordPress site, maybe I can, you know, use a PHP exploit or whatever, and and actually create that file on a website that I don't own, right? By exploiting a vulnerability in in the web application that they're running. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and so maybe that's not good enough either. It's like, do we need two factor for uh, domain val- control validation? Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Well, that was uh, that was a particularly crafty one. Do you have any other thoughts on the story before we move on? Uh, no, that's it for that one. That would be interesting. Their next story has also been getting a lot of attention today. So uh, let's take a moment and let's thank one of uh, TechSnap's long-running sponsors now, and that is the cool folks over at Ting. Ting is mobile that makes sense. They're on a mission to just straighten out the in- industry with some really Pretty simple, straightforward ideas. You only pay for what you use. It's $6 for each line. They have a wicked great dashboard and control center that lets you manage your account without ever needing to worry about, am I getting charged for something strange? Is this lying? Can I turn this line off and I'm still getting billed? Can I disable this device? Can I activate these devices? Can I disable data on it? All that is so easy and straightforward. It really should set a standard on how the rest of the industry does it. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com. That'll give you $25 off your first device. And if you already have a compatible device with Ting, they'll give you $25 in service credits. Now, what's really great about Ting is they have a CDMA and GSM network. Two different technologies means one might work better in your area. So you pick a phone that matches that. Because they support GSM, too, there are a lot of devices that work with Ting right away. You can find out more. They have a page that tells you all about it. So no contracts. Only pay for what you use in your average line going to be 23 bucks it's really nice i have three devices i get and sometimes i add a fourth device depending on a road trip or something like that also i just would su- suggest after you visit techsnap.ting.com you might also follow ting ftw on twitter if they were going to have news in the next few days this would probably be where they would post it and you might want to know about that news So check them out at twitter.com slash ting ftw. And also, even if you are not looking to switch to Ting yet, or you're outside the U.S. and you can't take advantage of Ting, you can still support the show. Go to techsnap.ting.com and learn more about Ting. They also have Fiber Internet. They're, They're a pretty cool company, and they have posts up on their blog about cutting the cord, like this one about watching cable news. Which news these days is becoming... Pretty, pretty intense, and it's kind of nice to be able to check in from time to time on what the heck's going on with elections, or brexits or Mr. Trudeau up there in Canada. You can find all that with uh, different streaming services online, and they have a blog all about it. You can start by going to techsnap.ting.com. No more contracts, no ETFs, truly, and completely contract-free. No other BS or bundling of ride-along services. Just a flat $6 per month, plus your usage. Man! TechSnap.Ting.com. Go there, check them out. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Oh, okay, Mr. Jude. So I just mentioned it at the uh, top of that. This next story is getting a lot of traction. The one that I've seen getting linked around a lot is the article up on Ars Technica. So that seems like a perfectly reasonable place to start. A new yeah, they attack. have a like, good summary of it. So and what is actually, it? Uh, what is this
1: definitely. new attack, Alan? What is it? Yes, so there's a new attack called Heist. Okay. Ah, which stands for <laughs> HTTP encrypted information can <laughs> be stolen through TCP windows. Oh,
0: my goodness. Okay.
1: Yes. All right. Uh, so this new attack uh, exploits how HTTPS responses are delivered over TCP and uh, how compression is used with that and the new JavaScript API.
0: Oh, all right. This seems, uh, boy, look at that uh, pop-up window there. Nice design there. It's looking good, Alan. <laughs>
1: Yes. Uh, so this exploit is notable because it doesn't require you to be a man in the middle position. Oh. You don't actually have to man in the middle someone uh, to decrypt their HTTPS traffic. Like How you, is that possible? Like Easter crime. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> instead, an end user uh, needs only encounter an innocuous looking JavaScript file hidden in a web advertisement or hosted directly mm. on a web page. Okay. The malicious code can then uh, query a variety of pages protected by a secure socket layer or TLS uh, protocol and measure the precise file size of the, request to, of the encrypted data that it gets transmitted. Uh, so once attackers know the size of the encrypted response, they are free to use one of the two previously devised exploits to ferret out the plain text obtained inside of it. Hmm, okay. uh, both the breach and the crime exploits that we've talked about previously uh, are able to decrypt payloads by manipulating the file compression uh, that sites use to make pages load more quickly so with those it was by adding words like parts of the UR, uh, to the content of the page um, so basically you find a page that when you um, add some stuff to the URL it also gets added to the content of the page okay uh, and then if you add Something that's already on the page somewhere, then because of the compression, the page doesn't get any bigger, right? Okay. And so by adding something, if if I'm trying to guess your PayPal cookie, uh, I just keep guessing until I find the string of random letters that isn't or that doesn't make the web page get any bigger when I add them because they're <sighs> deduplicated because they were already there.
0: Huh. Right?
1: Yes. Um. So it says, heist makes a number of attacks much easier to execute, uh, who says Tom Vandergotham who's one of the researchers who devised the attack. Before, the attacker needed to be in a man-in-the-middle position to perform attacks such as crime and breach. Uh, now, by simply visiting a website owned by a malicious party, or with a malicious ad on it, uh, you are placing your online security at risk. Uh, rather than having to visit a malicious website, all that it takes is an advertisement or a bad JavaScript on the page in some way. Using heist in combination with breach allows attackers to pluck out and decrypt email addresses, social security numbers, and other small pieces of data included in the encrypted response. Breach retrieves this feat by um, including intelligent guesses, say at gmail.com, in the case of an email address, in the HTTP request that gets echoed in the response. Hmm, smart. Uh, because the compression used by just about every website works by eliminating repetitions in text strings, uh, correct guesses result in no appreciable increase in the size of the response, while incorrect guesses cause it to get bigger. Uh, to determine the size of an https protected response, the attacker uses an oracle technique that uh, returns what amounts to a yes-no response for each guest, uh, right? So... When a request contains value equal, uh, results in the same size as without it, the attacker knows that the string uh, inside the encrypted response is there and then tries to modify the guess to include the next character. So I do get with value equals zero. And if that gets bigger, then I try with value equals one, also bigger. Value equals two, not bigger. Okay, so it starts with a two. So then I just try two one, two, 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 three, two, four, two, oh, two five is the answer. I keep doing that until I have the whole thing. Or for an email address, you just work the other way, right? You fir- you find the at gmail, and then you work out the letters by making the email longer the other way, right? From the letter closest to the at uh, backwards. Mm. Uh, and you know, obviously, it works well for small formatted numbers like social security numbers because there's only so many, and you know, you don't have to guess. You don't have to try every possible combination. You just, you know, after you start eliminating the first couple of characters, it's pretty easy. Hmm. Uh, And basically, you keep guessing the next character and repeating until you have the entire token. Uh, Until now, this breach-style exploit required the attacker to be able to actively manipulate the traffic passing between the web server and the end user, right? Being man in the middle. But now, you don't need that. Uh, The heist-enabled breach uh, exploit removes this limitation. It does this by using the TCP characteristics uh, as a quasi-cryptographic side channel to measure the size of the responses, so TCP divides large transmissions up into smaller fixed size chunks, right? So you actually uh, make up windows, and then those get broken up by Ethernet into frames, uh, and you send those. Um, and then so each window is sent, and then it only starts the next window once you've acted the information. Um, so Heist is able to count the number of frames in the windows uh, by interacting with a newly approved uh, JavaScript API that provides uh, resource timing, and another one called fetch. In this process, they allow a piece of JavaScript to determine the exact size of an HTTPS response. Uh, So maybe we should have considered that more closely when we made this new JavaScript API. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, Retrospect, you know, hindsight. (laughs)
1: Uh, Van Gotham uh, said the only mitigation he knows of is to disable third-party cookies uh, since responses sent by the HTTPS site are no longer associated with the victim in that case. Uh, At the moment, most browsers by default enable the receipt of third-party cookies, and most online services don't work unless third-party cookies are allowed. So that mitigation isn't going to be very useful. Uh, So this was demoed yesterday at uh, Black Hat. And uh, they say in yesterday's demo, uh, they show a malicious ad displayed on the New York Times website is able to painstakingly measure the size of an encrypted response sent by a fictitious third-party site they set up called targetwebsite.com. It will go on and show how that information can be used to infer the characters uh, contained in a security token designed to prevent cross-site request forgery, which would then allow Uh, the JavaScript to log into your Gmail or something. And uh, interesting, we're also not protected by next-generation HTTP protocols either. Uh, Heist is also effective against HTTP 2, the Mm drop-in replacement for the older HTTP standard. Mm -hmm. Uh, In particular, Heist can abuse new features of HTTP 2 to actually increase the damaging effect. So Uh, if we know that HTTP 2 is being used... Uh, we can let the browser simultaneously request the targeted resource and another resource that contains the reflected content. So it actually makes the attack easier. Uh, Gotham wrote in the research paper, uh, since http 2 is used, uh, both requests are sent in parallel to the server, and the server replies to them in parallel as well. So, yeah, http 2 is not helping in this case. Uh, So, so much for our hope that http 2 would actually eliminate (laughs) some of these problems. Yeah, uh, so it's too early to know if heist uh, combined with breach will be exploited against real people uh, visiting real HTTPS protected websites. Uh, as of yet, uh, while you know breach and crime have been around for a while, uh, there's no indication that breach has ever been exploited in the wild because it requires you to be man in the middle, and that's you know outside of a nation state, it's pretty hard to do that. Mm. Uh, the but the new convenience offered by Heist may change that, because all you need now is to be able to put some JavaScript in an ad or on a website. Yeah, an ad
0: network would really be something, wouldn't it? That would yeah. be... Uh,
1: hmm. uh, so then, yeah, uh, as you were showing, I have his slides here, and I also have his uh, the paper.
0: Yeah, slides are pretty good.
1: What's that a slide of? <laughs> uh,
0: this would be uh, page 47 of the presentation. <laughs> it's a goat uh, with a smoke and a cigarette. Or no, it's a cow. With a stethoscope, smoking a cigarette, picking a safe, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> but it's got human arms. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's
1: just, I, well, I, how I, else
0: are you going to smoke a cigarette? That's so. got
1: to be from a movie, but <laughs> I, don't I, don't, I don't get the reference.
0: I don't get it either, but pretty good. Uh, boy, the whole thing, talks uh, the PDF goes in a little bit to talk about the, uh, some potential additional countermeasures and whatnot. Yeah. but
1: Because uh, the interesting is that no countermeasures for uh, crime or beast have really been developed yet because they weren't really considered that practical.
0: They, uh, huh, they randomize a TCP congestion window would be inadequate, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Huh. Disable cookies. Here you go. (laughs) That'll do it. Any other thoughts on that one?
1: Like every website ever. Yeah. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Also getting a lot of attention. I'm glad you broke it down for us, Alan. Hmm. Thank you, sir. All right. I want to break something down for you right now. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go there to land on a page where you can get their white paper and register your vote for more episodes of TechSnap. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there, learn more about ix who builds incredible systems around those Intel processors for any open source workload that you might have. From big, huge, ginormous, to my humble free NAS, they have all of it. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. And whenever a conference is in the air, whenever you can hear something kind of uh, coming down the old pipe, you might check out ixsystems.com slash blog. I mean, it's not as awesome as ixsystems.com slash text. Maybe you go there first and then go to their blog. We talked about uh, recently the uh, like that, that massive uh, heliport, heliport rig that they had. So ever... They've had
1: Megaport before, but heliport yeah. is pretty
0: awesome. Hell yeah. Did we ever talk about the uh, Cavium Thunder X? That's pretty I amazing, so, too. So uh,
1: yeah. that's the 64 core ARM server.
0: Yeah. Man. Yeah. That is so, so. That I love their blog, and like I was right. like I was saying, whenever whenever like an event is coming up, and Ix attends it, they usually do a recap there where you can yep. you get a sense of what those things are like and see if it might be something that's. Uh in an interest to you. And the real reason IX is there is because being part of the community that is developing the projects and software that a lot of people use on these systems, that's, that's an essential part to the IX recipes. They're right in there at the ground level with the people creating the code. Some of them work at IX. A lot of them work at IX. And mm-hmm. IX has got great relationships in hardware. They have great support. And some of the best pre-sales engineering I've ever yeah. experienced.
1: It, like, literally, on Tuesday of this week... Uh, our company did a trip to our data center and was installing some new machines and working on some stuff. Nice. And uh, Sounds fun. Look, looking at the kind of range of hardware we have from like the machines we built ourselves in <laughs> yeah. 2009. <laughs> yeah. And then our first set of, of, of super micro machines that we bought like bare bones and assembled ourselves. And then the stuff from iX. And it's like, if we had heard about iX back in 2009, do you know how much better off we'd be <laughs> right now? Mm-hmm. It's like, I remember if you think back to like uh TechSnap episode like 20 or something uh where I built my first ZFS machine remember we went through I like do. all the parts and the pictures and all the mistakes I made that IX would have saved me from yeah like yeah, buying yeah. that Adaptec RAID controller they really, were like oh yeah don't buy that one don't uh, it says it works with FreeBSD on the box, but only works with old versions of FreeBSD. And also, it's a RAID controller, and you're using ZFS, you'd actually be better off with a cheaper HBA that doesn't even have any of those features. Yeah. And it would save you so much time and heartache. Mm-hmm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I wish I had known. Yep. Absolutely. I, I got, I,
0: they saved me money when I bought the FreeNAS here for the studio, too. I was, I was just like, well, I'm going to go all the things.
1: Yeah, but it's, uh, the, all the FreeNAS minis are $150 off right now. Or That's, the Mini XL, anyway. Oh.
0: That's a great, that, the, that is a great rig for your storage. So check them out. Go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and uh, just see if maybe they might work great for you. They have for Alan and I. I wouldn't recommend anybody else. Now, speaking of storage indeed indeed backblaze is back <laughs> with hard drive stats for q2 of 2016 always kind of interesting to see what large storage devices end up being reliable for them i kind of fantasize yeah. about you know using this to as an as a one of the data points for my large storage purchase exactly
1: well i actually did you know when i when i it came down to it's like i need to buy some 4 terabyte drives and i'm kind of looking through amazon and I'm seeing yes and no and stuff and and I find that the Seagate four-terabyte drive and the reviews are pretty bad, but then you look at the reviews and it's Amazon has mixed the reviews from like every hard drive of that brand from 500 gigabytes to like six terabytes. That just doesn't work. And most I hate of the that. bad reviews are not about this model. Mm. It's like, this isn't even the same generation they're talking about. What, so that's a
0: totally invalid stuff? data point then.
1: But basically, the bad reviews have pushed the price down. But it turns out this is actually a really good, reliable drive. So I'm like, (laughs) $110 for 4 terabytes? I will take lots of those. (laughs) Nice. Uh, But the reason I felt safe doing that is because in the Q1 2016 report from Backblaze, it's like, yeah, we have 36,000 of those drives, and we're happy. I'm like, well, then. I think I'll be fine. Uh, But what's nice about this report is uh, their first report to feature the new 8-terabyte drives. So, if you've been wondering, you know, there's a couple of different brands. Which eight terabyte drive do I buy? It's like, well, Backblaze has bought a bunch, and here's their experience.
0: I have been wondering about eight terabytes. I think that's. I'm thinking if I were to, I'm thinking about consolidating storage at home. From like, I have, I have data spread out all over the place right yeah. now, and consolidating all. And I'm thinking, you know, two, three, four, eight terabyte drives might be the right price, especially if they go on sale. So this is this is perfect timing for me, Alan.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, as before, the HGST drives are doing very well with uh, extremely reliable and so on. Although, uh, some of their models seem to be doing better than others. Although, I think if you look at that, uh, some of those older ones, it's because of the age. Like that, you see, there's a slightly different model of uh, a three-terabyte drive and the failure rate's over 3%. Yes. Uh, But that's only eight failures out of a thousand drives. Okay. Uh, But, you know, it's also only a thousand drives where if you look at the, the, the Seagate four terabyte, the good one there, they have almost 35,000 of them. Yeah. Really. Um, so the Seagate drives are on spec about what you expect for typical desktop drives. And then the Western digital drives are not doing so well at all. You see some of those like f- four five, 8% failure. Although, uh, if you look, they don't have all that many of those drives. It's like, what's like 138, 46, 400, et cetera. And, uh, as we heard in the Q1 report, it wasn't so much that they didn't buy the Western Digital drives because the failure rate wasn't very good. It was mostly because they were having trouble actually buying thousands of Western Digital drives at a time. And they found that the smart data on the Seagate drives is better and help, uh, better predicts failure and tells you when the drives had just a hiccup versus when it actually needs to be replaced. That's an interesting angle. And so they actually prefer the Seagates just because the smart data is better. Okay. Hmm. Uh, but, yeah, looking at it, almost half of all the drives they have in the entirety of Backblaze are that one particular Seagate 4-terabyte model, and it's a desktop model. Jeez, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I think it would help uh, for Backblaze's uh, formula to consider the age of the drives as well. Uh, you know, like, I imagine the reason why those Seagate, or sorry, the HDST the 3-terabyte drives have a higher failure rate is just the fact that they're 2, 3, 4, 5 years old now, right? Um, and it would be interesting to see a graph of failure rate versus drive age, which they haven't done in a, a while yeah they, actually, right. they did want the this called the bathtub curve right where drives die a lot when they're brand new and then they're good and then they, as they get old uh, but they actually promised at the end of the article that they will uh, do a bathtub one in uh, the next report so we'll okay. actually start looking at when do hard drives fail uh you know would this many percentage of them fail in the first like three months and then it you know they the failure rate evens out and we just get the random. Fa- so the original idea is uh, there's a graphic, but it would take a while to find it. Anyway, so you see uh, a high failure rate trickling down of when drives are new and they die. And there's another one where as drives get older, they die. And that's curving up the other way and kind of creates the two edges of the bathtub. And then you have a baseline of just the random failures, right? Where some component just goes bad and the drive dies. Okay. And that's just a random percent chance all the way across the flat line. Okay. And this kind of creates this bathtub shape. Uh, when they looked last time all of their numbers were much higher than all those predicted numbers. Uh, but I think that was just because that was during the the great hard drive apocalypse of the flood in Thailand or whatever, uh, meant that everybody was stri- uh, struggling to get hard drives and were people were struggling to produce as many hard drives as possible. Mm-hmm. And you know, also Backblaze was relying on shucking hard drives out of external enclosures. Shucking exposures. and jiving. And, and those have had bad firmware and so on. And- I
0: find it interesting. What it really kind of says is... That that was like a, a measurable period of time where hard drives were less quality for them. Yeah. Like they, they had – the drives they had yeah. to pick from were just of inferior quality.
1: Yeah. And, you know, every one of the manufacturers has had a certain model of hard drive that's been bad. Uh, but in general, uh, when we look at the second graph, we see that most hard drives are actually quite reliable now. Okay. Um, yeah. So they uh, – they also explain their formula that they use for that uh, failure number. Like you can see in that first column, the numbers are kind of all over the place, and that's uh, because that is literally just the number of failed drives divided by uh, the number of drive days that that model's been in service divided by three hundred sixty-five. So that basically is you know of the you know if you're looking at the the very first one there, uh, they had twenty drives fail. So uh, twenty of the thirty-five hundred drives failed in the. Uh, 362,000 days of service that those mm-hmm. drives have all had. Mm-hmm. So 365,000 divided by about 1,000. So each of those drives has been in a service of about 1,000 days. Uh, 20 failures, 1,000 days means 2%. Uh, and so on. And so that doesn't really consider the age of the drives at all and a couple other things, but you know, it makes sense. Uh, for uh, The other examples like Toshiba, they have uh, those, the one model of drive where they've only had a single failure on the Toshiba 5-terabyte drives or whatever. Oh, wow, yeah. And that, that ends up meaning they report a uh, 9% failure rate, but it's just because they have only have one drive and there's not that many in service. Right? They haven't been in service that long. It's
0: 45, and,
1: yeah. Yeah, so 45 drives for a total of uh, 4,000 days, so that means it's been less than 1,000 days or whatever, uh, and so or less than 100 days even. So, one drive dying in the first 90 days, while that's a high annualized failure rate, that's probably that first part of that bathtub curve where it's pretty normal for a drive to die yeah. uh, when it's brand new. Oh, really? Yep. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's an expected trend. And so, that, that number doesn't necessarily mean that much. And so, it's all, you know, it comes down to sample size being too small and so on. Uh, they also, in that report, have an interesting discussion of their migration process. Uh, they used to do, you know, one machine at a time, with, you know, they would have like 40 or 60 drives in a machine. Uh, They're now getting to doing an entire rack at a time, uh, which is like 20 of those machines. Uh, And they talk about that and basically moving a bunch of machines full of 2-terabyte drives to machines full of 8-terabyte drives. It's like, well, you know, you could fit uh, four of the machines full of 2-terabyte drives and one machine full of 8-terabyte drives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they also talk a bit about um, some of their older chassis support only 60 drives or uh, 40 drives versus 60 drives. No. Oh. It's like, well, we're still using some of the 40 ones because A, we're recycling them when we take out all the two terabyte drives. And also, we bought a bunch of them and why we're going to use them all up first, right? Before we use the new ones. Uh, but anyway, there's that. Uh, but further down, they have another table where they actually break down their failure stats for uh, rather than just the one quarter. Uh, April 2013 through July 2016. So basically as long as I've been keeping these stats. Now that one's much more interesting because you see almost all the failure rates are in the expected range of like 1% to 3%. Uh, you see the HGSTs, uh, HGSTs are all very good uh, except for the, you know, the two 8-terabyte drives that have failed kind of throwing their numbers off being high at the 3%. Uh, you see that every other one's been almost below 1% except for the uh, certain model of 2 and 3-terabyte drive. Uh, but you can see they have the confidence number, where if you look at the 8-terabyte ter- uh, HTC drive, hmm. while two drives is a 3.2% failure rate, uh, the actual confidence ratio in there could be as low as 0.4% or as high as 11.5. Depends, you know, as they get more days and that number does go up or doesn't go up, that, that range will narrow until it makes sense.
0: Hmm. So, in yeah. other words, they have... They have forty-four thousand drive days on the eight terabyte, with only four failures so far. Yeah, that's
1: not bad. So uh, the the HGST one was like twenty thousand, and only two drives failed. But yeah. Okay. Uh, Okay. But basically, you see that uh, the HGST drives seem to be slightly more reliable, uh, but they have a lot more of the Seagate drives. uh, You know, counting for sixteen point six million of their thirty-nine million drive days, uh, and their failure rates only about two point eight percent. And to them, that's not bad. Mm. Uh, They say, in total, out of their entire data center full of these machines with, with, uh, I forget what it adds up to, but like 50,000 drives, they replace maybe four drives a day. Uh, Mm. And that means that if they build a pod with 40 machines, or 40 drives in it, uh, they lose like one drive a year. That's, That's not killing them. Right. Yeah. And so they're like, we're, we're perfectly happy to go with the Seagate drive, even though the failure rate may be like 2.8% instead of 1.3, uh, if it's cheaper, and hmm. or easier for us to buy 10,000 of them at a time. Right. Uh, and so on.
0: Interesting. Bgh13 in the chat room says that um, his work was struck by the shockin and, and Jive era of disks as well, and his boss wanted to know why. Why are we having so many storage failures? Why? Why? What's going on here? And he says these, these stats, you know, that they've been publishing now for a while, have helped him communicate to management. Well, this is this this is the model and series of drives we bought, and this is what Black Backblaze has seen as well, and it's kind of matching up, and that's that's actually pretty cool.
1: Yep. Um, Of course, Backblaze doesn't buy fancier enterprise drives, so their stats don't help you there. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, maybe there's some correlation that. You know if, if the company makes good desktop drives, their enterprise drives are probably better, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't know how much. In particular, we don't know if it ends up being worth it paying the extra for the enterprise drives. Uh, and so on. Um, but hopefully, someone who does use those enterprise drives will make a similar report and we'll be able to be able to compare and be like, "Oh, so you know, enterprise drives turn out to have about a two percent failure rate too, and so paying twice as much for the drives maybe isn't worth it. <laughs> But it also depends on where, you know, the enterprise drives usually have other features that you need, like dual porting so it can support being connected to two controllers in case one dies or something, or, you know, time-limited error recovery and so on. But it was definitely an interesting trend to see uh, with the new series of Seagate drives coming out, the 6, 8, and 10 uh, terabyte ones, that the NAS drive is cheaper than the Pro Desktop version. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I found kind of interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, the 4-terabyte Seagate drives uh, are our workhorse drives today, and with their 2.8% annualized failure rate is more than acceptable to us. Uh, their low failure rate roughly translates to an average of one drive failure per storage pod per year. Hmm. Uh, over the next few months, uh, expect more of our, uh, mi- more talk about their migration stuff, uh, a look at the day in the life of the data center tech, and an update on the bathtub curve, for, uh, which is the hard drive oh. failures over time. Nice.
0: I will look forward to that. I will.
1: And, yes. Uh, if you would like to do your own things with the data, I have a link here to the actual uh, raw data. Like This includes uh, even some of the smart parameters, so you can actually uh, <laughs> do your own data science on this. Huh. So they have uh, all the data from uh, the previous reports as well. Uh, so this is a huge data trove here they have. Uh, uh, and their you know rules for using it are just, uh, you have to say that you got it from Backblaze, and you have to uh, not sue them, and uh, you have to not sell the data. It's free for everybody. Pretty, pretty cool. I oh, like yeah, that. They have the uh, docs from uh, Q1 and Q2 of 2016, mm. uh, 2015, 14, and 13. Uh, there's also some other st- reports they've done in the past, like 1 billion drive hours and counting, or uh, what is the best hard drive, hard drive reliability update, uh, hard drive smart stats, where they just talk about what it means, or hard drive temperature, does it matter? Uh, that was one particular question that came up in the uh, discussion thread at the bottom of that post was, you know, what temperature do you guys run your drives at? It's like, uh, well, when we looked at the smart data, only two drives had ever exceeded 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It's like, okay, that that seems reasonable. Uh, so you see, they're not like cooking their drives. Uh, Didn't we see the, a Google study, though, that showed that drives seem to
0: handle high temperatures better than we thought at first? Like, I thought that was something. Yeah.
1: Yes, the, the, the Google study is a bit old now. Yeah, uh, like, yeah it is. It, it had, it had Matrox drives. Oh my a, gosh, Maxdor. Uh, Maxtor, Max 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 trucks. trucks is the. You yeah. know, though, I will say
0: uh, our free NAS rig runs out in the uh, JB garage, and uh, in the summertime, it, it's it's got to be over hundred degrees out there. It's I'm not, I don't, I'm, I'm amazed that that thing continues to plug away.
1: Yeah, um, in general, the too much heat does wear out the like does affect the reliability of the drive. But if you're talking about the difference between lasting five years and seven years, do you care? Yeah, perhaps. Right. Uh, interesting. So, yeah, it'll be nice to see their bathtub curb. Uh, the interesting thing is that they're retiring their two-terabyte drives before they're dying, mostly because they just you know they need more room. The same amount of space and power it could be used for an eight-terabyte exactly. drive instead. Yeah. Uh, and so we we'll, might never find out how long those drives would have lasted.
0: You know, I thought this was be an interesting
1: number two, 250 petabytes. Is what they have now, yeah. Is what
0: they're storing now, 250 so petabytes. So they
1: were slightly behind on their prediction of where they, when they would get to 200. Uh, it took them longer than they thought. But for 250, they actually got there slightly sooner than they thought. So it's kind of working up, yeah.
0: Very good, sir. Very good. Well, you know what? Speaking of storage that's going up, DigitalOcean has new block storage. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. You apply that to your account. It's one word, and it gives you a $10 credit. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to get up and running. They've done that with a great interface that works for you noobs, and it also works for... You old salts that have been spinning up servers for years. DigitalOcean.com, promo code SNAPOcean. One of the things I want to mention with that $10 credit is you could really play around with some seriously powerful hardware for an unbelievable price. Their, their two-core rig, which is, I mean, I just I find it to be super, super powerful, $0.03 cents an hour. Use that promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. You could get $0.03 cents an hour for quite a ways. Have you been wondering about trying FreeBSD out as a server? Or what about messing with NextCloud or OwnCloud or SyncThing?
1: Oh. They they have ZFS-based uh, droplets now.
0: Oh, my goodness. If, if
1: you go in there and you choose to create a FreeBSD, they have FreeBSD 10.3, finally, and then they have 10.3 ZFS.
0: That is awesome. And try it out for free, SnapOcean. Mm-hmm. You can play around. They Also, we were talking about Let's Encrypt earlier. They have great documentation. They have a tutorial on using uh, Let's Encrypt with Nginx. I think that'd probably be something worth checking out. DigitalOcean.com. they got data centers all over the world. San Francisco, New York, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto. And you combine it with their great API, which uh, we might actually end up talking about in an upcoming feedback segment. And uh, all that, all that, it starts at just $5 a month. SnapOcean, that's our promo code. Gets you the $10 credit. You try it out two months for free.
1: DigitalOcean.com. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean. But yeah, the fancy thing there, it's got to be combining the block storage with ZFS. Yeah, that's exactly what I was wondering. You rent on a per gigabyte basis. So you can rent only as much as you need right now and make it a ZFS. And then if you need more, you just say, hey, DigitalOcean, make it bigger. And then ZFS online minus E for expand. Boom. Now your ZFS is that big. Because right, you don't have to do anything fancy, you can just grow it online, that's how ZFS works, and it just keeps, you just keep growing it as you need. So you're not paying for storage you're not using, and you can just add more storage as you need it. Mm-hmm. And if you ever decide you need to shrink it, you're not using as much anymore, you make a new one uh, and attach both of them, and just use ZFS send to replicate all the data off the uh, old one to the new one that's smaller, uh, and then throw away the old one, and now you're paying for less storage.
0: Yeah, you can you can attach a storage and even pay for it uh, by hour if you want. Yeah, exactly. And it's all SSD-based, too. That's <laughs> so awesome. SnapOcean, and a big thank you to DigitalOcean for supporting the TechSnap program. Congratulations, guys, too, on the new block storage. That's a great combination. I can't wait to play with that. Holy smokes. Speaking of that free BSD, there's a new BSD now out, episode 153,
1: Big Init Trouble. Uh-oh, what's going no, on? No, not Init, just Int Oh oh yeah, uh, yeah this is uh fuzz testing of the openbsd kernel found some interesting problems uh where mm. some 64-bit code met some 32-bit code mm-hmm. and uh shenanigans interesting were interesting things happened <laughs> that's awesome and so uh well we covered the exploits and stuff the other week uh uh one of the openbsd developers did a post kind of explaining how it happened and the history behind it and uh we found that quite interesting yeah episode 153 of
0: the tech snap or i'm sorry of the bsd now program the tech snap program is about halfway through the show and so you can start that download get the hd version when we're all done and more jude will be ready for your face bsd now episode 153 but with the news all done it's time for the tech snap feedback Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. And our first email this week comes in from Scott T. And uh, Scott writes So I just upgraded my free NAS box to have a 10 gigabit E to my primary workstation and was wondering if there is any way to guess or estimate how many drives would be needed to come close to saturate read and write to a RAID Z2 array. I would guess saturating write would be the easiest using the ZIL cache. Maybe 250 gigabyte uh, by, times two RAID 0. But not sure what would be the best to saturate the read. I currently get around 180 megabits a, or megabytes a second over the link. And he gives us our specs. He's got uh, 32 gigabytes of ECC RAM in there. He's got uh, w, Western Digital Reds for drives. And he's got an Intel NIC for the uh, 10GE. And his HPA is an LSI uh, 00244. With, and his workstation is an i7 with 32 gigs of RAM. Even nice, So nice hardware on each end that can easily keep up with that yeah. speed.
1: Uh, so the first thing is that a ZIL will not help for copying files over a LAN. Uh, in particular, the ZIL is only used for uh, synchronous transactions like databases. Um, oh, okay. And so ZFS is smart enough to just completely skip it when you're just copying files asynchronously.
0: I had no um, idea. That is huge yeah. to know. Okay.
1: Because, well, writing the data twice is just going to be a waste of time.
0: Right? I, I, yeah. I, you know what? The only way I thought, the way I think I assumed the, uh, the ZIL worked would be perhaps files I frequently access just got cached there. And so when I started a large copy, some of them
1: would live. Well, the, the L2 arc... SSD cache.
0: That's what it does I'm that for
1: reads. The okay. Zil's the one for writes. Okay, but it's just for so normally a database is like okay somebody's added this you know a new orders come in I want to write that to the database uh, and then it does what's called a sync which basically says don't tell the database I'm done until that's actually all the way written out on the hard drive which if there's you know ten orders a second coming in that's a lot and doing that will eventually slow it down to where the limits how many you can do per second. So writing them to the SSD uh, and letting it continue is faster, right? Because you write it to the SSD and then the database can keep going. Um, and then at the end of each transaction group, which by default is every five seconds or once uh, the the RAM cache is full, okay. um, it writes out to the actual hard drive okay. as a big chunk, right? Instead of uh, writing each file that you're trying to do, it just... Masses everything up in memory and writes it out to the disk every five seconds or faster if you're, you know, sending really fast. Hmm. Um, so it tries to do it so that it takes less than a second to write all the data that you need to write. Uh, so the idea is that you get better read performance if you do like all reads for four seconds, then all, only writes for one second or something to that effect. As opposed to if you try to do both at once, the hard drive's head is just kind of all over the place and, sure. and it actually slows you down a lot. That makes sense. So by actually holding off on the writes and letting you read as fast as possible and then doing all the writes you need to do and once those are done go back to reading, by interleaving them like that, ZFS usually gets better performance out of your spinning disks. Um, but yeah, so the Zill's there to take care of the things where I need this write to be done right now in like under 100 milliseconds. Okay. I can't wait for the next five-second barrier, uh, and so those things get written to the SSD. I but if if you were being, if you're sending 180 megabytes a second over your network, uh, there's no sense writing that to the SSD and then later copying it to the hard drives because eventually, you know, if the hard drives can't keep up with that uh, amount of data, then why? Um, then eventually the SSD gets full, and now you're just wasting your time, right? It only makes it faster for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so only for stuff where it's time critical does it use the Zill otherwise it just writes it only it just keeps it up in RAM and once the RAM is full or the five second happens it writes it out to the disks in a big batch Uh, which writing out in a big batch instead of seeking all over the drive is also faster Um, so why are you only getting 180 megabytes a second when you have uh, looks like seven hard drives although that's a weird setup this is RAID array 1 and RAID array 2 uh, although he mentions that there's ZFS, or maybe they're not right now?
0: So three, two terabytes in array Z1, and then four, three terabytes in array Z2, he says.
1: Okay. That's slightly different. Oh, yeah, very, okay. Um, yeah, so your IOPS are limited there, but that, that should be enough to write more than that. Uh, so the first thing to test is to make sure that, uh, to basically test the write speed without the network. So you basically did like DD. Uh, from, so make a new data set uh, in ZFS and make sure you turn compression off. Otherwise, this will cheat and not work. <laughs> yeah. Because um, if you write all zeros to ZFS, it's like, oh, I, I, I'll just compress those down to nothing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's too clever for that. I'll, I'll let you write like five gigabytes a second. You'll think everything is fine. And it's like, that's not how that works. Uh, so, yeah, make a new data set, turn compression off, and DD dev zero to a file with like one megabyte blocks and see how fast that writes.
0: That's um, great. That's the that, so Take on. the network out of the equation. Take the, the switch other, out.
1: Or, or even in this case, while doing these transfers over the network, run GSTAT on the FreeNAS and see how busy the disks are. Or if it's one disk that's slowing you down, maybe one of those disks is dying and it's just slowing everything down. Um, also, make sure you upgrade to uh, newer FreeNAS. 9.10 will be a lot faster than 9.3. Oh, I, my,
0: um, my bad. He's doing a direct connection from the FreeNAS box. So he's not going through makes sense
1: with the 10 gig e yeah it's just yeah. got no switch involved yeah. yeah so
0: that is that is the network is probably not likely introducing mm-hmm. delay but
1: yeah could so be a bug you,
0: in a driver or something
1: too. you can use iperf to test the network uh, he also doesn't mention how he's copying the files over like if you're using nfs there's some tuning you can do there uh, versus if you're using samba versus if you're using like ftp uh, so, that can be. So, use iperf to test that the network is going uh, as fast as it should be. Use GSTAT to uh, look at the right latencies on the hard drives and see if they're actually being kept busy or if they're like kind of idling around and not using up all the performance they could be, uh, et cetera. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. You, you can see why it'd be frustrating for him a little bit because he's like, man, yeah. I've done all the right things hardware wise. I've got direct connections, I got a super fast. You know, when with speeds like that too, I would be tempted to run almost everything off the NAS if I could get mm-hmm. it up that speeds.
1: Well, I'm only using gigabit in my yes. house. I, I I have my my mirrored 240 gig SSDs in my desktop, uh, with only like the OS and a couple of apps, but like all my business data, all my video games, everything runs over my free NAS. So you vision.
0: actually launch your app, your video game applications. Yeah. Uh, like my entire Steam directory, and that's is like on, a Samba share that's like yeah, mapped it's to a just drive. Just a Samba or? share to
1: yeah. I have my my F drive on my computer is just my freeNAS. Do you know well, any? Do not you notice NAS, any slower access times for like? Not really. Like uh, for gigabyte for the megabytes per second, one hundred and twenty-five that you get off Gigi is about the same as you would get from a regular spinning hard drive. Right. Some bigger hard drives can do a little bit faster than that now, but uh, the latency doesn't really seem to ever be an issue. He's probably uh, trying I bet Scott's trying to do that basically get SSD speeds <laughs> over network. Yeah. Board. Well, sometimes like, you know, uh, because you're using ZFS, when I go to load a game, if it, if I'm in the game then it's going to use the RAM on my file server to cache all the like the, the files that I'm actually going to use for the game, yeah, yeah. and it it does a really good job.
0: Do you do you think there could be any issue with the fact that uh, he's using Reds?
1: Uh, I don't know the specs on the Reds. They're 5400s, uh, right? Right, but if you're just looking at straight megabytes per second, yeah. I and, wouldn't expect that. And in an now, array, in, he's he's seeing 180 megabytes per second of read. I would expect more from the read. Um, and for writes, as long depending on how much data in total you're sending, the memory. ZFS will be buffering it up in memory and then writing out to the drives as fast as the drives can handle. Uh, and so at least at the start of your transfer, you would get even better speed at, uh, until the, the write throttle kicks in to right. eventually stop you from sending more data than you can push out to the hard drives because eventually you would just run out of RAM, right? Um, and ZFS kind of tries to tune that adaptively to get set state on a number that your drives can actually handle. Um, but yeah, that's a fairly hard question to answer without like, sitting on your two machines yeah, and seeing. Yeah, exactly. You, uh, iPerf to check the network and make sure you're actually doing uh, the speed you want. Also look at iPerf with uh, minus capital P four and send four streams at once and see if that, uh, especially if you don't quite get as much as you think you should out of one stream. If four does, then uh, that can help. Although in your case where you have one client, uh, there might be some stuff you can change there as well. Hmm.
0: I uh, would like it if Scott would send us an update, if he does figure it out, just so that we kind of get some extra data points. Good luck, Scott. JP writes in uh, with a great question. Uh, Hey, guys, I was wondering how secure it is to send a file to someone by giving them a link inside a directory with high entropy, like a 25-plus-character unique link. For example, mywebsite.com and then just a large, large string of characters slash file.txt. As long as you don't link to it anywhere publicly, I don't see how any human or search bot... Would stumble across it. Thanks for thanks and keep up the good work.
1: Uh, we covered something like this from Bruce Schneier a while ago, uh, but Google. Yes, there it is. Google's unguessable URLs. Wow, you're on the ball. Right? <laughs> um, Thank you, sir. <clears throat> uh, But Google basically does this for stuff as well. Yeah, like uh, the Google even, Photo pictures and uh, Docs. Yeah, yeah uh, even Google Docs. Basically, I can uh, I can ship my series. Uh, set the sharing settings to only people that have the URL. And it basically generates a long random string like that. And only people who have the URL are allowed to edit the doc. I don't have to know what their Google account name is, which works really well for, you know, when I want to share with people that is like, hey, I need people to uh, review this article that's going to be published in a magazine, uh, but I don't want to have to invite into each individual person or whatever. And I am like, I'm fine if you share it with people. Just don't let it get out of hand. Uh, So, yes, that's fine as long as it's not easy for someone to figure out what directories do exist. Um, So, if you have – Apache has a module called typo or spelling – I think it's mod spelling where it will try to – if you – instead of giving a 404, it will try to guess what URL you meant. Uh, And it might be possible for someone to – by guessing like the first four characters of your random string or each possible of the first four characters be corrected to that – or if you allow directory listing or something like that. But in general, uh, yes, a long random string should be fine.
0: Great. George writes in with the next question about redirecting domain requests. He says, hello guys, I'm stuck at a bit when I'm building our new infrastructure and I need some advice and knowledge. I'm trying to build three droplets, each with its own multi-site WordPress install. Now every multi-site has around 10 to 15 domains attached to it and they all have emails attached to them as well. I kind of don't want to install a mail server on every droplet and manage three email servers all at once. Is there any way I can deploy a fourth droplet that handles all domain requests and emails and connect it to the other three droplets? So when someone types example.com, it goes to the fourth droplet and it redirects the traffic to droplet one, two, or three, depending on the multi-site it resides in. Is that possible with droplets? Is that a good idea? Is there a better way to just do this or spin up a mail server on each droplet and suffer with the maintenance? Regards, George.
1: Does he mean... For outbounders, like uh, normally in DNS, you set the mail server, and you could just set it to the fourth droplet in the DNS, and that wouldn't matter now. Yeah, I think you uh, might not
0: be understanding how that works, but potentially.
1: Yeah. Um, so there's a couple things there. So uh, with the MX records in DNS, you specify the mail server, and you can specify all of them use the fourth droplet. Uh, I don't know if you're hosting the DNS yourself or not. I'm kind of guessing not. It depends. Uh, So that might be a little bit more of a thing. Um, But in general, you know, you set the MX record to be mail.thatdomain.com, and then you can have all those just point to to your dedicated mail server instead. You will still need a little bit of mail setup on each of the droplets uh, for the sites to send out emails uh, the correct way, but... That depends on your setup. But that, that's um, not
0: so bad because that can do right. local host only.
1: It's, yes. it's a lot or more. Or they sec- could all smart host to the fourth mail server yep. over the DigitalOcean internal network. Use private whatever. networking, yeah. Yeah. Um, as far as the redirect thing, it depends. You probably don't mean, an actual redirect. Uh, you have a couple of options there. Um, you know, you could run an NGINX on the fourth droplet and reverse proxy to the other three droplets. but then that's basically creating a single point of failure. If the fourth yeah. droplet goes down with that NGINX, then you can't access any of the sites. So you probably don't want to do that.
0: Plus, you might want to spin up droplets in other data centers down the road, yeah. and then you might not be able to take advantage of private networking. So yeah. Yeah, uh,
1: that's extra work. So using DNS to direct the mail to one place and the website to another place is probably your best bet for that part. Yeah. Um, And then the other problem with doing the redirect from the fork droplet depending on the multi-site setup is you would probably need to have access to the database to know which one it goes to. Um, uh, But you can do that if you want. Um, The way I've done a setup before would be Uh, maybe having two front-facing droplets with uh, using uh, something like DigitalOcean's elastic, or what do they call them, floating IP addresses. So the IP address can move between the two servers depending on if one of them goes down or whatever Mm -hmm. with your NGINXs. And then uh, you have droplets behind that maybe have um, uh, the files for all of the sites uh, and then you can load balance across them or whatever. Um, Again, it depends on your setup. But uh, yeah, DNS should be enough to let you shunt all the incoming mail off to a separate droplet, or just the third of the three droplets, or whatever. However, you want to do it, because yeah, setting up three mail servers is probably overkill. Yeah, you probably do want to backup MX anyway, uh, which uh, maybe is actually easier if you have all your mail on the fourth droplet. You can spin up a fifth droplet in a different DigitalOcean data center, and if the your main mail server is down all the mail goes over there and gets collected, but not delivered. And then when your first droplet comes back up, it just shunts all the mail back in so that uh, all your users eventually do get their email.
0: Hmm. There are also, uh, I can't remember the names now. I know that uh, Postini used to be one of them. Message Labs, I think, used to be one of them. Uh, Mail route where uh, they essentially handle, they become your smart host. And uh, you just don't bother managing that part.
1: But uh, why don't we? This is actually a perfect. Yep, uh, or you can use uh, for the backup MX, you can do similar things. Uh, like I yeah, exactly. A, yeah. DNS Made Easy will will basically yep. uh, act as my backup MX and just spool up my mail. And once the mail uh, is back online, uh, once my mail server is back online, they will send the uh, the mail to me. That
0: is probably the. Because uh, uh, I have a sense he's kind of new to this, George's, and I, that would probably be a great thing for him to look into. And then Steve writes in with an email that perfectly sort of continues this line of thinking. Uh, he says, hi all at JB, I love the shows. At last was the gateway drug. The, then that got me to TechSnap, Quota Radio, Unplugged, and now, of course, BSD Now. After realizing how much content I consume, I've become a patron and I want to say thanks for what you do. That's awesome. Anyway, following last week's TechSnap 277, the final feedback item was about email providers and rolling your own. Remember, we talked about secure email. Uh, I have been hosting my own email server for over three years. The current incarnation is, of course, hosted on a DigitalOcean droplet. Ars Technica wrote up a four-part article a couple of years ago with very in-depth details. Okay, George, I'm talking to you. On how to set up postfix, dovecot, spam assassin, DKIM signing, roundcube, and much more. They suggest a start SSL in the article, but with the birth of Let's Encrypt, this step could be replaced. This setup has been rock solid for some time. So I thought it'd be a good thing to pass on to you guys. And he links to all four parts in his email, which you can find yep. in his, you can find his email in the feedback section, George. He says, I hope someone finds this useful. Thanks again, Steve. Steve, I think you probably just gave George the exact answer he needs. Yep. So combine Alan's advice with some of those guides so that way you do it right.
1: I yeah. Uh, I have an internal wiki at Scale Engine for our setup, which mm-hmm. is postfix, devcat, spam and DKIM signing, et cetera, and uh, <laughs> request tracker for our ticket system. But yeah. It's basically that that's a little bit and post it as well that is real. Yeah, really because it's got all the previous d specific instructions and everything. Uh, don't worry. If
0: you didn't get, hear your email answered, we have another batch of emails we'll be getting to. But we do need your questions now because once we get through that batch, we're at inbox zero for the TechSnap program. So go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Choose TechSnap from the drop-down and send us in your question. Storage, networking, security, infrastructure, troubleshooting, or war stories. We love them all. And something I, any, anything I didn't even mention, send it in, and we'll review it. TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. If you want to send us directly, start a thread, too, at TechSnap.reddit.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup for stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show and read along with us, if you will. Some of these links came from our subreddit, and the first one's a doozy over there. The FCC is forcing TP-Link to support open-source firmware on its routers... Also slapping them with a fine, right, Alan?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, TP-Link uh, admitted to violating the U.S. radio frequency rules by selling routers that could operate at power levels higher than the uh, legally approved limits. In a settlement with the FTC or FCC, uh, TP-Link agreed to pay a $200,000 fine, comply with the rules going forward, and... And let customers install open-source firmware on routers uh, to solve the Mm. (laughs) problem.
0: Yeah, that fine was over them monkeying around in the 2.4 spectrum, actually. But just to be sure, they pushed out an update to their customers to make sure they can't mess around with that. Now, here's what's actually sort of another interesting thing about this article, Alan, is uh, down here they talk about what other companies are doing for this problem. And Mm -hmm. this... I might, be, I might be getting my hopes up, but this was interesting. Linksys has been working directly with Marvell and makers of OpenWrt to make sure that the latest version of their WRT routers comply with the new rules without blocking the open source firmware. Separately, on top of that, which that's a great trend. I'd like to see that working directly with mm-hmm. OpenWrt. But Check this one out. Imagine Technologies is working on an open source software and radios, and the radio would not be open source, but the software portion would be that would allow these types of different uh, open source firmwares or os's to run in virtualization on these little router
1: boxes yeah, that's a bit slower that's that's a one way to limit the the open source software's yeah. ability to control the radio but it but...
0: also if if they had the speed of the if the if the CPUs and those things were fast enough and they had enough memory. But they're not
1: like, uh, imagination techniques, little right? tiny MIPS routers. <clears throat> yeah, like, I know. We're talking hundreds of megahertz. But megahertz.
0: I might pay 200 something dollars for something that had enough, like a, you know, a decent ARM CPU, comes with a real, sli- uh, you know, real base hardware, software integrated hypervisor OS, and then maybe I could put PF Sense on there. Yeah. Because if it's a standard VM, then it all of a sudden these projects just have to write to the virtualized.
1: Well, like, yeah, but but the, it's going to be virtualized MIPS or ARM, not. Right. It's, it's yeah, not sure. going to be x86. But, okay. Yeah, that's a good no. point. Yeah, okay. It's, well, it's uh, <laughs> There's uh, a new uh, a company in Israel called Solid Runs making a new little router board that looks pretty interesting with a couple of gigabit ports uh, for, I think it's going to be about $70. Uh, and it's hardware, uh, like a CPU that's already supported by FreeBSD. So that will uh, be pretty interesting as well. Hmm.
0: Have you uh, have you updated your Firefox to 48? The new version is Mine's out. Mine
1: hasn't updated yet. Uh,
0: includes Rust. And very few will also get the electrolysis, the new uh, multi-process uh,
1: shenanigans. Yeah. So uh, Firefox 48 ships with this new multi-process support, where the render engine will be in a separate process from the actual UI, uh, so that if it crashes, it can restart. But mostly, you'll get a bit more performance that way. So it's not
0: uh, it's not per tab isolation like Chrome does.
1: No, uh, they have that coming, but that'll be like uh, late this year, early next year. Uh, but for the next few days, a fraction of uh, percent of people running Firefox 48 will use electrolysis, and it'll slowly roll up until uh, their goal is to have half the people with Firefox 48 using uh, the multiprocessing support.
0: So this will run this separate user process, it runs with limited user privileges, and yeah.
1: That's, uh, basically the Gecko engine will run uh, so that if someone comes up with an exploit against it, it won't be able to uh, access mm. your hard drive or anything.
0: Oh, yeah, I'd love to see benchmarks on this. Be really interesting i guess they had a pretty successful beta now here's the thing though it's turned on, it's not turned on by default for pretty much anybody you know at all uh and i think you also have to have like no extensions and so it's going to be a very few few that have this <clears throat> it's kind of uh it's kind of uh it's kind of a split between what chrome does too and i kind of like that as well because it kind of gives us some more com- competitive approaches in the market which I think is kind of a nice thing. They've also integrated Rust. The Rust language is now in uh, Firefox 48, which is... I'll we'll have to see what that does. Um, and then, <clears throat> I hate to be the bearer of bad news, I had to tell Noah, in version 49, they're discontinuing Firefox or Mozilla Hello, whatever it was called, the, the, the conferencing software.
1: Right. Did uh, anybody ever use that? Well... I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever met a person that actually used it.
0: So, no, I don't think so. I think that's probably... I'm, I'm sure there's probably just like one percent more people that use Pocket. You know that stays, but uh, I think really well, that's the one that lets me share links between my phone and
1: my browser, right?
0: Pocket's like it's that. like offline reading. Pocket's okay. like, um, but uh, my, and, you know Noah did Noah and his son uh, used uh, because once you once you create a Mozilla account to sync Firefox, you just automatically have a Hello account too. Right. Uh, so he was yeah but he's so just going to use you can, a web WebRTC like, solution. Talkie.io
1: yeah, or one of the exactly. any other web ones. Most of which don't even require you to log in.
0: Yeah, exactly. It, does, it's not really, it doesn't need to be their burden. It yeah. just yeah makes yeah. sense. So it's we, a
1: good technology demonstrator, and then it's like, oh, look, people who are dedicated to doing this are doing a better job. Let's, yeah. let Let's
0: focus it. on Pocket. Uh-huh, I kid.
1: Uh, <laughs> and also
0: congratulations to Firefox for getting nearly feature complete to, and competitive to Chrome. Uh, seven well, uh, years after Chrome, they,
1: they mentioned the, and there's a bit of background in the story about how you know the, it started doing it in 2009, but then the Mozilla Foundation suspended work on it in 20 early 2011 and didn't resume until 2013. So that, but in the end, you know, Google, Microsoft, and Apple all pay people to work full time on the browser, where Mozilla does much fewer staff. Right. It's it's not it's like not they're problem. poor though. I mean, they right, but. They're making you know, some money off that Yahoo
0: deal too, by the way. Holy smokes! Sure,
1: but the, you know they have a lot of other things they're trying to do with that. Right? Mm-hmm. You, uh, the point of Mozilla is not to make a browser; it's to make internet freedom. Yeah. Um, or
0: something. I don't.
1: I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. No. Do you care at all if it uses uh, more RAM? No. Uh, my biggest problem with Firefox is when it won't. It's like I have like 24 gigs of RAM, but the Firefox process always goes batshit at like 2.3 gigs of ram. This
0: is cuz this will eventually increase its memory footprint.
1: I'm perfectly happy to let it have more ram. Yeah, I, I agree. I just want it to stop getting sluggish when it's using a bunch of ram.
0: Would you turn it on <laughs> if you were presented the option?
1: Uh yeah, you know, yeah. if uh when it comes down I'm hoping this will help a lot with my problems. Yeah. Uh because the other thing for me is I have multiple Firefox instances running, right? So I have different profiles and links that start different versions. Like this one mm. Firefox here has literally a hundred tabs open, and they're refreshing every five minutes. It's doing all this stuff. Yeah, two hundred and thirty-eight megs of RAM. <laughs> uh, the one that a uh, uh, freshly restarted Firefox that had the Google Doc and basically just all the links in the show, which involves a bunch of a lot of news sites with big ads and stuff. Uh, but currently has four tabs open uh two of which are google docs one is the google doc index and one is a story uh 1.2 gigs of ram now it's because firefox doesn't really give back any ram ever uh but it's because i had to open it it's not firefox's fault it's the websites yeah if, if i just go to plain html websites yeah. that have video that have big png graphs on them yeah that browser's been running for uh, 63 days and is using 240 megs of RAM.
0: That is a huge statement right there. That's the state of the web for you, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. Uh, speaking of that, how about this malvertising campaign?
1: Well, Thunderbird ca- is, is taking a gig of RAM now, too.
0: Well, you got yeah. This malvertising campaign infected thousands of users per day for more than a year. We talk about this all the time. The campaign affected 22 ad networks and what they call 113, quote-unquote, legitimate sites. LAUGHTER <laughs> Security research from Proofpoint and Trend Micro have uncovered a massive malvertising campaign that has been targeting over 1 million users per day. Per day, you guys. And it actually only managed to infect thousands, though, but still. <laughs> uh, running since the summer of 2015, with unconfirmed clues showing that it might date back to as early as 2013. So every time Noah, every time, Alan and I say, yeah, all they really have to do is get that on a, in, in an advertising network, and they're set, well... Yeah, happens. A lot. <laughs> yeah, it does. We seem to cover that about almost once every two months or so. Now, this is interesting. I hadn't really heard much about this. The EFF is uh, filing lawsuit challenging the DMCA's restrictions on security researchers. Hallelujah.
1: Yeah. uh, You know, the DMCA has all these requirements about, oh, you can't try to break copy protection because you know, it's the digital millennium. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. R-A-A-A or something. Uh, It's like, well, you know, security researchers have to do that. Otherwise, we end up with Sony Rootkit uh, as part of the the DRM. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, let's fix that.
0: (laughs) This is interesting. I've been watching for more news on this. Iranian hackers claim to have compromised Telegram secure messaging. However, Telegram, in their response, has said, to prevent this from happening to you, go here to learn more about how to use secure passwords. And I guess there's also a way you can create a certain strong password, which is apparently optional. So I guess you could just use a stronger... It sounds like it's either a password compromise, but they claim... They have 15 million of the services users in, the, in Iran, and they went after a good batch of them.
1: Well, yeah, that sounds like, you know, what happens when you get a giant database of hacked logins from one site and try it against another site. Hmm. Uh, but in general, my concern with telegram has always been that it's, you know, if, if they're not telling us exactly what crypto they're doing and how they're doing it, then it can't be trusted.
0: I agree. I agree, and I think there's. I think if that if that security is the number one thing you're looking from a messaging app, there's better apps out there that to have to have documented like crypto,
1: Signal or mm-hmm. uh, um, and WhatsApp uses that same yeah. one. So
0: yeah, w- if you would turn it on, um, <clears throat> you know, although Telegram is super popular and yeah. uh, continues to be, in it, cause I think well, I think security is a concern, what but it's not the number one not concern.
1: Popular with its billions. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know
0: what I'll tell you. I'll tell you though. I think part of it is is for some of the Telegram users I know, the the threat of a carrier snooping on your SMS is more direct than yes. the crazy crypto Telegram might be using. Yes. So.
1: Although, you know, what a lot of the people are using their messaging app for is not of interest to state-sponsored yeah. anything. I know. <laughs> so tell me about this
0: uh, PDF we got in the roundup.
1: Yes. Uh, so FireEye. at least a report called Overload critical lessons from 15 years of ICS vulnerabilities. So they're looking at industrial control systems, and basically they have their vulnerability trend report for 2016, hmm. uh, but basically looking back at the problems that have affected ICS uh, for the last 15 years and how things are probably not getting much better. And uh, you know, if you deal with ICS, you should uh, definitely take a look at this and uh, you know, start trying to solve some of these problems.
0: Oh, boy. This sounds like this might be an attack against QR login systems. What would you dig up here, Alan?
1: Yes. uh, There's a new one called QRL jacking, Hmm. uh, which can bypass many QR login systems. What is a QR login system? Uh, It's something
0: that's become popular. Like like almost like a a faux two-factor? Like scan Um, this QR code while you're typing in?
1: It's a way to not have a password, if I'm not mistaken. That sounds I, like I a really bad idea.
0: That sounds like a bad, that sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. 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 Okay. Jump, boy.
1: Although, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, on BSD Now uh, this week, we uh, talked, uh, in one of the user groups, uh, somebody came and presented about encryption and, and stuff, and they were talking about why the U.S. government is starting to move away from using biometrics for uh, two-factor auth. Because, um, so if you use your fingerprint as a second factor, that works pretty well, but if someone manages to copy your fingerprint, mm-hmm. whether that's you know a photocopy that they lick, or if the scanners you know they have to make it out of ballistics gel or whatever, um, at the end, how do you change your fingerprint when it gets compromised? Right. Yikes! <laughs> like, or your retina scan. I don't like any of the uh, answers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they're more going more to you know secure tokens and cards and things like that because. It turns out the problem with biometrics is you can't change the password uh, once once it's compromised. And uh, that becomes not very useful at all.
0: Uh, In WhatsApp, speaking of WhatsApp, you can use a QR code to log into the web client. Yep. There you go. All right. So this is interesting. Horse battery staple. Frequent password changes are the enemy of security, according to a technologist with the FTC. Contrary to what you've been told, frequent changes can be
1: counterproductive. You yes. agree, Alan? If you, if you make people change their password every 30 or 90 days, then they will probably end up with the password being what it was last time with the number on the end incremented by yeah, one. Yeah, I have seen that so, a lot. Yeah. If you basically, if you force it constantly, they're just going to do something lame.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, whereas if you don't, maybe they will do something a little better.
0: In fact, <laughs> yes, we do have
1: uh, a... I wrote an article back in 2009 about the same damn thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, if you make people change their password all the time, they're just going to do something lame. Uh, So stop doing that. The main reason it was before was, oh, if somebody gets the hash password database when it's encrypted with triple DES, um, they will, uh, you know, eventually be able to crack it. So if we keep changing it every 90 days, then as long as it takes them more than 90 days to crack it, it won't be any good. It's like, yeah, well, now we have password hashing that's strong enough that they won't break it in the next 10 years. So let's stop forcing people to change their passwords Mm -hmm. and it's more likely to get breached because they used a bad password than it is because uh, they actually brute forced it.
0: Digital Titan says my users do their passwords backwards and also add one, two, or three, et cetera.
1: Yes, especially when you get the thing like Windows Active Directory policy says Mm -hmm. you can't use any of the last 10 passwords you used. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that means Windows is probably storing those other passwords. And if I figure out what your last three passwords were, I'll see the pattern. And then I can guess your fourth password.
0: One of the most funs I ever had, and I, it was years ago, was Loft Crack as a part of an internal audit at cracking people's passwords to see what they were using and seeing some of the yep. things people put in there that they never remember, think anyone will ever know. Remember this Loft Crack
1: story for next week's episode. All right.
0: So let's talk about uh, the Japanese Olympic champion who's <laughs> got a $5,000 bill. By playing Pokemon yeah. Go. <laughs> yeah, he was
1: playing Pokemon Go and, and <laughs> didn't have a local sim, so he was paying his Japanese carrier. And, Holy smokes. So uh, he called up his carrier and they agreed to uh, give him an unlimited plan at $30 per day, mm. uh, which, you know, that still adds up, but it's a hell of a lot less than $5,000. Uh, but yeah, it's like maybe you should just buy a Brazilian sim
0: Yeah. <laughs> while well, yeah. you're there. That's you th- for sure. This
1: is always my fear when I'm traveling all the damn time.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about this one, Uh, Windows users and uh, capturing Microsoft VPN accounts. What's this about?
1: uh, Being able to de-anonymize users and track them and uh, stealing their Microsoft and VPN accounts off their computers. Oh, yikes. This is... uh, I didn't have time to dig into this as a full story, but I figured it's something people might want to know.
0: NTLM Relay on Active Directory with Interceptor NG. Wow, check that out. That's I got a video and all. Good find. All right, so speaking of Microsoft... I shook my head when I saw this one earlier this week. So Microsoft bought up SwiftKey not too long ago, and SwiftKey just had to disable their sync service because of a bug that leaked email addresses and phone numbers to strangers. Yeah. Yeah, so this is something that's pretty bad. So the Verge reports that one user, an English speaker, was getting someone else's German suggestions, while someone received not-safe-for-work porn suggestions. The Telegraph well, Yeah, also so you go to type
1: in the search field, and it's pulling up, uh, the autocorrect is pulling up suggestions from somebody else's phone.
0: Yeah, and uh, even contact, like phone number. numbers. They said they got a brand new phone, and it suggested their email address when logging into an account online. So,
1: yeah, so imagine you get a brand new phone off Amazon or something, and you go to log into your email, and it's suggesting somebody else's email address in the, in the login box. And so you email that person be like, did you recently just buy one of these phones and return it or something? Because I paid for a brand new phone, and somehow it has your email address programmed into it. Turns out it was actually SwiftKey just kind of splatting other people's stuff into other people's accounts all over the place. They're like, oh, it's not a security issue. It's like, really? You're giving away everything people have typed, basically. <laughs> it, is, it is astonishing.
0: That is 2016 in a nutshell for you, everybody, right there. The keyboard, that is uh, unbelievable. If you'd like to submit a story to the TechSnap program, go over to TechSnap.reddit.com. Also, be sure to join us live over jblive.tv on Thursdays. That's where you can go to watch the TechSnap program and go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time. Thanks for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.